So our sermon today is on Psalm 128, so I'd like to just read it for us. It's just six verses. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways, when you shall eat the fruit of your hands. You will be happy, and it will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, um, Matt asked me what I wanted to preach. He gave me about four uh, psalms to read, and I saw kids and wife and, and a good life, and I thought, I'm going to preach this one. This one looks like fun, and it looks like this is where I'm at. Young kids and, uh, you know, stay-at-home wife, and, and we're right in the thick of you know, the center of life where the kids are young and, and everything is, there's lots of life. Um, and then I started digging into this and um, I thought, this is kind of a hard one to preach. Because if I'm just looking at exactly what it says, it starts off, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. This is in third person, just in general. There's a blessing for everyone that fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. So what's the blessing? Somebody that fears the Lord and walks in his ways will eat the fruit of their hands, a.k.a. they will be blessed, they will, they will have wealth. They'll be happy and it will be well with them. Uh, sorry, I should say, for this part, it's, it moves to second person. So it's moving from a general, the person will be blessed, to you, presumably speaking to the person that is blessed. Uh, you will eat the fruit of your hands. You will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. So the imagery there for the Jewish people of fruitful vine, vine was one of the staple foods, also very pleasant, you make wine, it's very intoxicating, uh, very beautiful. So it's all these images of a beautiful, voluptuous, uh, wonderful wife that you'll have. Uh, you're a fruitful vine within your house, that's significant. Within Proverbs, there's the promiscuous woman, the boisterous woman that leaves the house and that is more interested in other things and other men, but this is a fruitful vine within your house. Uh, your children will be like olive plants. An olive plant was, was a smallish tree, another staple of, of Mediterranean food, produces olives, produces wood, produces olive oil, very important staples, uh, and it stayed green all year round, and it was a relatively long-lived plant. And so kind of like we have evergreen trees, and they're kind of a symbol of everlasting vitality for us. That's why we have a Christmas tree at, at Christmas time, and it's kind of symbolic to us. Uh, the olive plants were symbolic to them as you know, everlasting youth and vigor and, and long life. So the imagery here is you'll have a beautiful wife, you'll have healthy kids. Uh, Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And then it concludes with a blessing. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Um, so there's one thing here that was going to be a whole other sermon. If there were two sermons, I realized halfway through my preparation, there's only one sermon, so we'll X that. But it's, it's interesting that it's completely family-focused. Uh, all the blessings here relate to family. And so right away as, you know, part of our generation and part of our culture, I say, well, what about all the people that aren't married? What about all the people that aren't ki don't have kids or are divorced? Or what about all the minorities? Um, and the Bible is just unapologetically family-centered. And the, I, I realized in looking at this that the opposite of family-centered is kind of individualistic. And our culture is individualistic focus. What's your dreams? What's your plan? What's your health? 
Whereas the Bible says you came from a family and the next generation will come from families and family is the center of humanity, not the individual. But that's for another sermon, another time. More what I'm looking at here is how can I read this and apply it directly to my life? Can I say, hey everybody, serve the Lord, love the Lord, and you'll have a hot wife, healthy kids, blessings, and money, and health. That's kind of literally what it's saying, isn't it? So, so how do I approach this, and how do I preach this as a promise that you can have? Because in our experience, we know that this isn't true. And Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, take up you know, your money bags and, and your prosperity and follow me. Though following Christ is a sacrifice. And for most of us who have been following Christ for a while, sorry if I keep playing with my technology, um, we have found that it has been a sacrifice. It has been hard. And there have been a lot of times when there was a path following Jesus that was difficult and a path not following Jesus that was easy. And the path toward Jesus was not the path towards prosperity. It was not the path towards more friends and, and, um, and the, the sorts of things that are listed here. So um, this takes me on a rabbit trail, which is kind of going to be the rest of the sermon, <laughs> on the health and wealth gospel. Now, who here has heard the term the health and wealth gospel? Um, so it's kind of a term that's, that's come to coin a certain way of thinking that basically comes down to, why don't we... Um, the one piece of technology that didn't end up working is the clicker, so I'll do this. Health and wealth gospel. Um, this, the, so the question for today is, does God always want me to be healthy and wealthy? Does God always want me to be healthy and wealthy? Because according to Psalm 128, it seems as though the plan for God for my life is to be healthy and wealthy, to have a great family and, and lots of stuff. Um, so the health and wealth gospel is basically the belief that when we serve God, he will always reward us with health and wealth. Serving God means money. Serving God means health. Not serving God means no money. Not serving God means no health. And there are actually people, a lot of people that preach this. Um, I don't have a TV. I've actually never grown up with TV. But I've heard that often when you click on the TV and you see a pastor on there, he's often kind of preaching something like this. That, you know, if you serve God, the, the blessings will come. And often there's a subtitle that if you give to God, God will give back to you. And here's our number on the bottom of the screen. And if you donate to our ministries, you know, blessings will fall down. Uh, and all the verses about, um, you know, pour down, uh, God will bless you, pressed down, shaken, uh, spilling over. And, oh, see that I won't open the heavens and rain down blessings on you. Taking verses out of context to say, give us money and God will give you money. And it'll be a great investment strategy. I'm going to skip the next two. This is kind of a longer definition of what the health and wealth gospel is. Basically, it came up, you can keep going, um, in the, it was kind of, well, you can back up one, actually. Uh, it was kind of made up in the 1900s, perhaps roots in the 1800s. It became very popular in the United States. Some of the major proponents, of course, there might be some debate whether these people really are health and wealth. Of course, nobody wants to be called that, but... Some names you might recognize on, on there are Joel Osteen, uh, Kenneth Hagen, Kenneth Copeland. Certainly, um, where's, uh, oh, he's not on there. Uh, Benny Hinn is somebody that I would certainly put on there. Um, and, and these are people that right now are preaching, if God loves you and if you are serving God, you will be rich. Look at me. I'm rich. I'm serving God. And often these people are very, very, very rich. Um, so that's the health and wealth gospel. And I have actually had people, you know, on a much smaller scale, um, but 
that really honestly, sincerely believed this uh, and, and from scriptures really argued with me that, hey, if God is blessing me, I'm going to be healthy. And if God's blessing me, I'm going to um, be financially stable. So let's move on to the next one here. Why, where is it in the Bible? You know, there's all sorts of people teaching all sorts of crazy stuff. And most of it doesn't have much staying power because it isn't rooted in scriptures. The worst heresies or the worst errors are the ones that, are, that have uh, some roots in scriptures. And, and this is one that actually does have some merit in scriptures. So how do, how do health and wealth preachers find uh, grounds for their, their um, beliefs? So the first is promises to Israel. If you read the whole Old Testament, it's basically a covenant. Well, not the whole Old Testament, starting with Abraham right up to the deportation of Israel. God is making a promise with Abraham and then to his descendants and then to the Israelites. And then as they're going into the promised land, on the, the one mountain he has people stand there to speak the curses and the other mountain to speak the blessings. And there is a covenant that God made with his people. If you are obedient, I will let you have the promised land and you will be healthy and you will be wealthy. If you are disobedient, you will not have the promised land, you will not be healthy and you will not be wealthy. So this is the promise to Israel for that time. And there's all sorts of debate about whether those, those promises apply currently to Israel, but certainly they don't apply to us Christians. That was a special time, a special place for them. Go on to the next one. Secondly, wisdom literature. Um, so Proverbs is kind of the go-to place. If you're, you're starting out life, if you're a teenager, um, I was hoping there'd be some teenagers here, but if you want wisdom, if you want to figure out how to live a good life, read Proverbs. And also, you know, Ecclesiastes and also the Psalms and also, you know, lots of other parts of the Bible. But especially Proverbs just gives you so much wisdom in how to live a good life. Things like go to the sluggard or sorry, go to the ant, you sluggard, and see how hard he works and how he stores up in the good times to have some left over for the, for the hard times. Um, there's profit in any work, but idle talk leads nowhere. Great advice. Uh, there's lots of stuff about watching your tongue, watch what you say. There's lots of talk about a fool and a foolish person. You avoid the foolish person. You don't argue with foolish people. You don't want to be a foolish people. You want to be a wise person. Uh, and you want to spend time with wise people. You want to listen to the advice of older people. You want to be teachable. So all these things are in Proverbs. And it's, it's great advice for how to live a successful and healthy and happy life. But they're not magic formulas. Um, so one really great example for this is uh, a verse that a lot of us probably know. Train up a child in the way he should go, and in the end, what? He will, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and in the end, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6. Now, does everybody here agree that training a child right is a good idea? An important priority. Does everybody agree that when we train children right, we set them on a good path for their lives? Everybody agree with that? Does everybody agree that when we train a child right and do everything right, they will never fail? No, clearly not. Clearly not. And so this is a principle, but it's not a magic formula. And so you can't take wisdom literature and apply it as though it's, this is always how it's going to be. Um, and certainly parents have been disappointed when they felt like, if I just do this, and if I just and sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves. If I find the right system, the right homeschooling material, or, or get the right friends, or go to the right church, then everything's going to be perfect and my kids can't fail. Well, they're always going to make their own choices. Um, and also, 
Uh, there's a verse later on in Proverbs that says, Honor the Lord with the first fruits. Um, Matt, uh, sorry, Proverbs 3, 9 to 10. I don't have it memorized. Psalm Proverbs. Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 9 to 10 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce, so your barns may be filled with plenty and your vats overflow with new wine. So honor the Lord from the first fruits of what you have, and God will bless you financially. And this, of course, is where people would go off and say, well, you give to God you know, a little bit and he's going to give you a lot. Magically, just like that. It's like a business transaction. What I think this is saying is we honor God with the first that we have, and it doesn't have to be a lot, but we prioritize him in our giving. And there isn't a standard number that you have to give as Christians. Uh, in the Old Covenant, there were standard you know, percentages, but uh, God loves a cheerful giver, and it's whatever we feel called to give. And uh, the testimony I've heard time and again from mature Christians that have lived a long time, that have been serving God over a long period of time, they say, we've gone through low periods, high periods, we've always prioritized God in our finances. We've never been rich, or maybe they have been rich at different times, but we've never starved, and God has always provided. And that's the same testimony I would give, that we have always prioritized God in our giving. Um, and we've been through highs, we've been through lows, we've been through school, we've you know, been unemployed, we've been moderately employed. And God has always provided. And I think that's what it's saying here, is that God provides. God is faithful. Um, but uh, these things aren't supposed to be magic formulas. It's not if you put this into the vending machine, then this will pop out the bottom. This is principles for how to live our lives. And so um, we need to read the different genres of Scripture appropriately. The Bible isn't a book, it's a library. And you read different books and different genres within the library in a different way. A lot of New Testament teachings, I don't think I really have time to go into this, but there's some New Testament teachings that are taken out of context. Uh, specifically, spiritual and heavenly rewards interpreted as physical and immediate rewards. So Jesus talks about we're going to be blessed, we're going to inherit the kingdom, we're going to be reigning and ruling with him. Um, but these are spiritual rewards, and these are, are for heavenly rewards. So these are kind of the ways that people get into the Bible and, and come out the other side as give to God, and, or give to our ministry especially, and you're going to be rich and you're going to be healthy. So, and... I mean, I'm, I'm kind of pointing a finger at, you know, kind of the, the Joel Osteens and, and people like that because it's easy to do. But this sort of teaching, honestly, it comes close to home. And there are people that, and this can sneak in. It, it can be a pernicious idea because you can just read a, a passage like Psalm 128 and not apply it correctly and feel like, well, God is telling me if I do everything right, then I'll be rich. So why is it not correct to read the Bible this way? Because collective blessings can't always be applied specifically. So God blessed the nation of Israel. And they were, as a nation, blessed. And there's still a, a blessing on Israel. But that doesn't mean that individual specific people within Israel never got sick or never were poor. It was a collective blessing on the nation. And in fact, within Israel during this time, even while God's blessings were very specific, very material on the nation, there were still gods people were still wrestling with, but that wicked man over there is, is rich and that godly man over there is poor. And it was this tension that the Israelites were still living in, even in that time. Um, and so Psalm 37, 7 talks about how 
no, I'll start at the end. Jeremiah 12, 1. The prophet Jeremiah kind of takes God to task. And that's what this, the chapter is about. He says, God, rich people or wicked people are getting rich and poor people or um, good people are poor. This doesn't make sense. This isn't what you said in Psalm 128 and other places. This isn't how it's supposed to be. And so, God, come on, send your lightning bolts down, smack some, some wicked people. Uh, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Psalm 73 is another psalm that's wrestling with this. And it says, my foot almost slipped. I almost stumbled because of jealousy, because I was jealous of the wicked man and how rich he was. And I think some of us have been there. It reminds me of high school and we were walking in the parking lot with uh, a girl who was recently a, uh, a, became a Christian and she pointed to the truck of the local drug dealer. And everybody knew he was the drug dealer. Don't know why the, the police let it go, but he was just, that's who you went to buy drugs. And he had an amazing truck. Because he's a drug dealer. Because he's getting people hooked on, on, on drugs. And she said, that's so not fair. You know, I don't even have a car. And, and here's this drug dealer with this, this truck. Um, my foot almost slipped because of jealousy towards the wicked man and how rich he was. In Psalm 37, I, Psalm 37 is um, just one of those psalms that I go to and just read it because I love it so much. Um, there was one summer I spent... Uh, uh, not tree planting, but thinning. It's very similar, uh, living in the bush in a camp and doing hard work. And, um, and there's often a lifestyle that accompanies that. There was a lot of fornication going on. There was a lot of drugs, a lot of magic mushrooms, a lot of uh, coarse talk and alcohol. And, and every night after a hard day's work, I'd grab my Bible, walk down to the lake and, and just read my Bible. And, and I'd go back and hang out with the guys too. But um, I, I want to make a point to say I'm a Christian and I'm not part of this. Um, the, uh, sorry, a little anecdote here, but the one guy pulled his back out one day with, uh, uh, work, with work, and just to give you an idea of how the conditions were, the foreman gave him a bag of weed and said, just take the day off. So that's kind of how things were, uh, on that camp. It was, um, it was interesting for a young 18-year-old that had, you know, grown up in the church to be working there. Uh, but I read Psalm 37 as I was sitting down by the lake, uh, with the party going on behind me. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. I'm going to read that again because it's so good. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Um, relax. Be calm. Be faithful. And in the long run, and we've seen this. Those, those of us have been around a little bit longer. When you're a teenager, you don't see it. You just see you know, the drug dealer with his truck. But over the long run, you say, well, whatever happened to that guy? And you, you don't know where he went. You don't know what happened to him. He might be, you know, you don't know what happens to these guys. But um, over the long run, God has a way of being faithful. 
All right, so um, that was to say collective blessings can't always be applied specifically, though. Good advice is not meant to be a magic formula, as I, as I mentioned already. Most importantly, because we're in a new covenant with God, and the old covenant no longer di applies directly to us. Uh, we're not in Old Testament Israel, and the, the situation that they had with God is different than how it is now. Of course, we still have the Old Testament because in reading about that, we're supposed to read about that. We're supposed to see how God related to his people, his heart for his people, how he related to them. It shows us a lot of good um, uh, you know, visual pictures of what our relationship with God is supposed to be like. But we're not in the same situation as them. Um, we are the true circumcision, it says in Philippians 3.3 3 in the New Covenant. And our... New covenant with God is an internal one, which is not tied to geography. Uh, Jesus sitting with this woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, she was very concerned about do we worship here on this mountain or over in the temple in Jerusalem? And Jesus said, a, a time is coming and it's now here when the true worshipers will not worship on this mountain or that mountain because God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And it is these worshipers that the Father is seeking. So we're looking for an internal and a spiritual um, covenant, not the one that we had previously. And because the new covenant that we have, Jesus, is, as I said, says, take up your cross and follow me. And he says it in at least four different places throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That the, the uh, covenant that we have now is work hard, choose the path of suffering for spiritual rewards, for eternal rewards. It's very different than the covenant that we had with uh, in the old covenant. Um, so why is it such a big deal that, that people are preaching the health and wealth gospel? Why is it such a big deal that this can sneak into our thinking, sneak into our teaching? Because it's wrong. <laughs> because it's wrong. Um, it does, for a teacher like me, it doesn't have to, to hurt anybody to, to drive me nuts. This is wrong, okay? Um, this isn't how you read scriptures. As I've mentioned before, we're in a new covenant. Jesus tells us to take up our cross and follow him. This is not how you read scriptures. But more than that, because it hurts people. Let's go on to the next one. It's been used as an excuse for the rich, uh, for people getting rich off the gospel. There's very clear warnings in scriptures that the gospel is not a way to get rich. It's not a, a get-rich-quick scheme. And from the beginning, people have seen Christianity and seen teaching, being, becoming a teacher, as a path to success and as a path to getting rich. And that often leads towards false teaching because if you want to get rich, you preach things that people want to hear and they'll pay you money. And if God's blessing always includes being wealthy and being healthy, then that is also very conducive to, um, to, to a false preacher that wants to be rich, get rich off of Christianity, uh, and then say, well, look, I'm rich, I'm... I'm godly because I'm so rich and healthy. Uh, more importantly, because it has been used as a way to rob and mistreat and misuse poor people. And I think this is what really, um, I think this really gets God, and it really gets me, that um, people, health and wealth preachers, would often they're in poor parts of the city, often they're in places where there's a lot of poverty, and they preach the message that if you give to God, specifically to our ministry, God will give to you, and that will end all your financial problems. And there's even been examples, a lot of examples, of people going to Africa 
and having big crusades and rallies. And we're excited about sharing the gospel with people in Africa, of course. But the message is health and wealth. And they make a lot of money and they pull out. And that is deplorable. That is absolutely deplorable. That is not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about giving to the poor, not taking from the poor. And when this happens, and it does happen, I had some names up there, but then I thought, I'm not, I'm not equipped to say whether or not these people are fleecing the sheep, so to speak. So I'll leave that off. But this does happen. And when it happens, it gives Christianity a tremendously bad name. And then when, when Matt or you know, somebody that's, that's just trying to serve God in a small way stands up and tries to raise support, then it's the reputation of these guys that smears the rest of us. So it's, it's really frustrating. Um, and it leads to a culture which reveres strength and condemns weakness. It leads to a culture which reveres strength and condemns weakness. If you're strong physically, if you're wealthy, well, you must be godly. If you're weak physically, if you're poor, well, God's blessings must not be on you. And this is actually, not surprisingly, uh, the culture of the New Testament. This is the culture of, of Second Temple Judaism. This is the culture that Jesus entered into when he was preaching and teaching. Uh, which is why um, he felt led to say, you know, took two, two issues from the news. And he said there was a tower that fell on some people in Siloam. Do you guys think they were worse sinners than everybody else? And the rhetorical answer would have been, well, yeah, of course. They were worse sinners. That's why they died. And he said, well, what about the people that Herod killed while they were offering sacrifices? And the assumption would have been, well, they would have been worse sinners than everybody else. And Jesus said, no, these weren't worse sinners. In fact, we're all under the judgment of God equally. Um, people on whom misfortune falls, it's not always because of the curse of God or because they've displeased him in some way. And likewise, in John 9, there's this long section uh, about a man that was born blind and God heals him. And as they're walking along, his disciples ask him, Jesus, was, did this man sin or his parents that he was born blind? And later on in the, you know, Jesus heals him and then he goes, uh, the, there's a big guffaw because everybody's excited about that and the, and the leading Pharisees or the leaders of the Jews uh, were not happy that Jesus was so celebrated. So they take the man in, question him, release him, take him in again. And finally, the man says, why do you keep asking me all these questions? Do you guys want to follow Jesus too? And they say to him, this, this man can't, can't be from God because we don't know where he's from and, and different things like this. And it goes back and forth. And they eventually say, you were born in sin. And you try and, and teach us. The assumption in that culture was he was a blind man, born a blind man. So there's sin involved. There's something wrong with this person. He's under God's curse because he's born blind. And the health and wealth gospel... When, it's, when we start thinking this way, when we start preaching this, it leads pretty quickly to a culture, and I, I have experienced this, I've been part of this, where you don't, if you have a cold, you don't really want to tell your Christian friends. Because pretty soon they're going to be, well, let's pray for healing, which is great. If you ever want to pray for healing for me, go for it. But if it doesn't work, oh, did you not have enough faith? Or maybe there's sin. And pretty soon you, you want to start hiding your weaknesses from friends. And pretty soon you don't want to talk about if you lost some money. And pretty soon you want to put up a, a facade in church to, because you, you want to show strength because that's what's revered in this culture of strength. So this is the direction that the health and wealth gospel goes. And the gospel that Jesus preached 
is proclaiming sight to the blind, is, is proclaiming the, the year of jubilee for the slaves and for the poor. The, the gospel of Jesus is all about helping those that are down and out. It's not about revering the strong uh, because they're strong. Furthermore, let's ask a question here. Does God always want to heal everyone all the time? Does God always want to heal everyone all the time? Do you guys believe in healing? Do you guys believe in, in answered prayers that we can pray to God and He will answer our prayers? I believe in that. Um, but I don't believe that Jesus always, God always wants to heal everyone all the time. I had a very long discussion with somebody a few years back who very passionately believed this and was, was teaching this very, very firmly. Uh, but as I said, that leads to a place of a culture of, of revering the strong and, and shaming the weak. And it's not, it's not the message that Jesus was preaching. Um, so uh, a great book on this is written by Joni Erickson Tata. Who here has, has heard of Joni Erickson Tata? So she's kind of a big deal within evangelical circles, um, especially in the 90s, was kind of her heyday. Um, but she um, was, she got a spinal injury in her late teens, and she became a quadriplegic from the neck down. And she went through a period, uh, she was raised a Christian, she went through a period of being very angry and bitter at God, and then eventually came to see it as a blessing, and she ended up becoming a, wor becoming a world-renowned speaker, and artist, and a musician, and has a huge radio ministry that touches millions of lives, at least hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, she writes a lot of books, and she does a lot of advocating for, um, especially the disabled, especially specifically for against euthanasia, and the assumption that the crippled don't want to live. And she's there as a quadriplegic, leading a very full and healthy life, uh, and a rewarding life. And so that's one of her main things. Um, but as she goes around speaking and, and, and teaching in various places, she recounts in this book that she often has the experience of people walking up to her and laying their hands on her and trying to heal her, and when it doesn't work, starting to shame her. And she starts off this book here. I was reading this book as I was discussing with this friend, and it's, it's, uh, the subtitle is great, Wrestling with the Mysteries of Suffering, Pain, and God's Sovereignty. That you know, all her life, you know, from 18 on, she's, she's dealt with it. She's in her 50s or 60s now, I think. And God has never chosen to heal her. And she doesn't feel like she's, you know, especially sinful or lacking in faith. Um, and she starts it off by recounting a story of, you know, she was, normally she has people pushing her around and helping her with stuff. But for whatever reason, they had left her for a minute. And this passionate young guy walks up to her and says, God has sent me and, and I have this, I came all this way to, to pray for you and lay my hands on you. And she said, well, if you want to pray for me, I can't stop you. And so he lays his hands on her and he prays for her and, and, she's, and he says, get up in the name of Jesus. And she doesn't get up. And he says, well, you're disobedient to the spirit. You, I told you to get up. And, and she said, this sort of thing happens often. And I think she's developed kind of a, a tough skin to it, but it's hard. It's hard to, to be shamed when you're already weak. Um, which is why uh, one of the main points of the book was to talk about the rest of the story in chapter 9 of John Jesus' disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, neither. Neither. Sometimes we sin and there's consequences. Okay? Sometimes we sin and there is judgment. But sometimes we're sick and there's no reason other than the curse on mankind and the fact that we live in a fallen world. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. 
And in this case, the work of God was to heal the man. And he got up and he praised God. And that's awesome when that happens. And it's awesome when people are in financial straits and we pray for them and, you know, something happens, they get a job, things turn around, and hallelujah. Or when, when the cancer is healed, when, when things happen. Um, but sometimes God's power is shown through us going through hard times. And he walks with us. Um, the great example of this is in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks about um, a continuing, ongoing issue that he had. Some sort of physical issue that he had. Um, and we, we don't know what it was because he doesn't say. Uh, one of the more, more likely possibilities is that he had some sort of a debilitating eye condition that he, he couldn't see or he had glaucoma or he had something where he couldn't see, couldn't write. Um, and, and likely needed some help being guided around because he just he had an eye issue. Or he could have had something else. We don't know what it was, but um, he said that it was like a thorn in the flesh. It was something that was just bugging him all the time. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities Infirmities meaning weaknesses. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in weakness, in reproach, in needs, in persecution, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That last verse there, it'd make a great motivational statement, wouldn't it? But it's tied to everything that comes before. When we are weak, God is strong in us when we lean on Him. And it's often through the trials and the fires and, and, and the hard times that God shows us so much of his heart and, and grows us. Uh, so let's talk now about uh, the, what I like to call the most misquoted verse in the entire Bible, which is also the secret, the secret that Paul reveals to us. Uh, he calls it his secret. So his secret is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, look at that little kid. He's so strong. Um, so like I could... I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can climb a mountain on a motor, on a, uh, what is that, BMX bike. Um, you know, another mountain. Yeah, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Look at that, I can jump across the mountains like uh, Superman. Um, I can do a sailboat thing, I guess. Uh, somebody's got a tattoo, it's their life first, I guess. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's back up and see what the context of this verse is. Um, the context of this verse is the book of Philippians. And the book of Philippians is Paul is a missionary, and he's a missionary that doesn't have very good support. And he's actually in prison. And so he's poor, and he is very needy. And at this point in his ministry, most of the people that he has reached have turned away from him for one reason or another. Some have been interested in, in things of the world. Some have been pulled away by false teaching. He's just at a low point where he doesn't see a lot of fruits from his labor. People aren't giving him money so he can continue his ministry, and he's in prison so he can't actually work for his own needs. And the Philippian church sends him a gift because they know he's in need. And so he sends them a letter, the letter of Philippians, to thank them for what they've done. And he said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. See, here's his secret. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. 
What Paul is saying is, through God's strength, I'm able to go through the highs and the lows. And this has been a real low, low season. And you've been a real blessing to me. But you know, with God's strength, I was able to get through it, even this. And I'd like to ask you a question here, maybe rhetorically. What's more amazing? Somebody that's, that's an athlete that says, I give all glory to God. The glory of God goes up and the blessings fall down on me. Or you often see athletes you know, pointing to heaven after they get a touchdown or musicians giving glory to God. And that's great. I'm not against that at all. But is that amazing? Being strong, being healthy, being at the, the peak and saying, give glory to God. Or to be like Paul in prison again, as he often was, just having being flogged with his feet in the stocks. So his feet are up and locked up so he can't sit, can't lay down. And in Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. That's kind of cool, hey? To go through all that. And they're praying and singing praises to God. And the prisoners were listening. I'd be listening too. Imagine being in that prison and being in there for a long time and being hungry and being poor and everybody's, got a, everybody's mad at each other and everybody's mean and everybody's wants to get out. And here's these guys and they're singing and praising God at midnight with their feet in the stocks after being flogged. What's going on with these guys? Sometimes we suffer for the glory of God so that people can look at us and say, what's going on with these guys? They're singing and praising God. They shouldn't be singing and praising God. So, that being said, um, how can we read Psalm 128? Just a little bit of a detour here. Um, so briefly, let's go through these. Um, we need to read Psalm 128 as somebody else's mail. Primarily, when we're reading the Old Testament, we need to understand this isn't primarily written to us. Um, it's like reading, you know, Johnny Cash's love letter to June Carter, you know. And you can look at that and you can appreciate it as, as poetry, as, as a work of art. But it's not primarily written to you. And you need to understand that or else you'll get very confused. Um, so the Old Testament is primarily God writing to the Jewish people. And through that, we can understand principles about God. We can understand principles about the new covenant that we're in. And we can understand certainly wisdom and we can understand different things. But this is, we're reading somebody else's mail at this point. When we read the New Testament, it's written straight to us. But the Old Testament, at least large parts of it are very much somebody else's mail. Um, we can read it as wisdom and principles. Hey, if you honor God, if you're wise, if you work hard, if you save your money, if you're not flamboyant with, with uh, your lifestyle, if you love your wife, if you're faithful to each other, you're, gonna lead the, you're probably going to lead a decent life. That's, that's wisdom. So we can read this as wisdom and as good principles to live our lives by. And the last one, um, we can read Psalm 128 as a blessing. And I think this, I've saved the best for last because I think this is really how it should be read, is as a blessing. And God created the world. He created heaven and earth by speaking. He spoke and there was light. And we are made in God's image. And when we speak, it says in, song, in one of the Proverbs, um, that we have the power of life and death in our mouth. That we can speak life and we can speak death. And it's amazing how um, you have all heard people speaking death over people, ideas, things. That'll never work. You're an idiot. It's over. You're a mess up. You're a screw-up. That's a stupid idea. 
And if you've ever watched Dragon's Den or Shark Tank, you've heard, you're dead to me. Um, and these sorts of curses have a way of sneaking into our minds and our hearts and our lives and our dreams and bringing death. And Proverbs says, uh, the, Proverbs 18.21 says, the power of life and death is in the tongue. But the opposite is also true. We can speak blessings. We can speak a truth, a reality that might not be true right now, but we speak a good reality over people because we want it to be true, because it should be true. And it's appropriate to speak Psalm 128 over ourselves and over each other because this is good and we want good things to happen. And so with your permission, we nod your head, your permission. Okay. With your permission, I'd like to speak this blessing over you and we'll, we'll conclude our time, well, the preaching time with that. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You will be blessed when you eat the fruit of your hands. You will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house and your husband will be like a solid oak within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, and may you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel and upon us.